In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The story of the multiplication of the loaves is recounted in all four Gospels. In fact, it's the only miracle story aside from the resurrection that is told by all four Gospel writers. Thus, it should be clear that this story is something worthy of our close attention. In John's Gospel, the multiplication miracle is almost immediately followed by the Bread of Life discourse. This is Christ's most detailed explanation of the Eucharist. In this discourse, Jesus tells the skeptical Jews, My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. In other words, our salvation depends on our ability to discern the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist that we receive. Now this might seem unfair. Why should our faith rise or fall based upon our understanding of this one particular sign or sacrament? The answer is that if we fail to see the meaning of the Eucharist, then we won't make sense of the arc of salvation history. If we fail to see why Christ gives us his body and blood in the Eucharist, we're not grasping the nature and meaning of his incarnation and sacrifice for us. In setting the scene for the multiplication, the gospel passage says that the Jewish feast of Passover was near. The Passover was associated in the Jewish faith with the Exodus, the escape of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. In the Passover, the Jews slaughtered a year-old lamb or goat, and then they painted the doorposts of their homes with blood. This was so that the judgment of God on the Egyptians would pass over them. The Passover, and indeed all of the Old Covenant, was only a temporary fix, of course. It did not cleanse Israel of her sins. It only held God's judgment in abeyance, which is why both the Passover and the temple sacrifice had to be continually repeated. Yet in situating the multiplication miracle close to Passover and later instituting the actual Eucharist on Passover itself, Jesus is showing that there is now a new rite that will take the place of the Passover meal. And unlike Passover, the sacrament of Christ's body and blood will actually work the remission of sins in the way that the blood of lambs and goats could never do. The other thing that we notice at the beginning of the gospel passage is that it says that after Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, he went up on the mountain and was there with his disciples. The imagery of going up on the mountain reflects Moses, who ascended the mountain to meet God. There he received the law inscribed on the tablets. Jesus, by taking his place on the mountaintop, likewise shows the people that they are here receiving the announcement of a new law, the new covenant that will be contained in Christ's sacrifice present in the Eucharist. But unlike Moses, who went up to the mountain alone, the people too accompanied Jesus up this mountain, showing that they are entering into a new intimacy with God, one unmediated by the old law. Next, we see that when it came time to feed the crowd, Jesus only had five loaves and two fish. Now, it might seem odd that Jesus was multiplying loaves and fish in prefigurement of the Eucharist. 
As we know, the Lord's Supper consists of bread and wine as his body and blood. But we see later in the Bread of Life discourse that Jesus said, your ancestors ate the manna in the desert. By this, Jesus shows the connection between the Eucharist, prefigured here in the multiplication, and the Jews receiving the miraculous manna that floated down from heaven in the desert. Note, however, that in the Exodus account of the manna, God also provided the Israelites with quail. The flock of quail would fly into the camp at night and fall onto the ground. If we go back to Genesis, we see that all land animals, and this includes birds, fell under the condemnation of sin that caused God to flood the world in the time of Noah. Noah was instructed specifically to gather not just pairs of every animal, but pairs of every bird, because all of these creatures were under judgment, and only those who were in the ark would be saved from destruction. Yet this was not true of the fish which dwell in the sea. They were not under the condemnation of sin and were not destroyed in the flood. Because of this, under the dietary laws of the Old Testament, which kosher observant Jews follow even today, there are precise regulations for the slaughtering of animals that are to be eaten. One of the most important aspects of kosher slaughter is that all blood must be carefully drained away from the flesh because consuming blood is forbidden. One reason behind this is because it was a common pagan practice in that time to consume blood. But more importantly, Jews believed that the blood, whether of an animal or of a person, contained the life force of that creature. To drink the blood of the animal was to debase oneself, to become more like the animal that the blood came from. In pagan cultures, which often worshipped animals, and in which people desired to gain animalistic powers, that was precisely the point. But to the Jew, it was denying the truth that men and women, not animals, were made in the image and likeness of God. But there are not similar rules against consuming fish blood. That points to the fact that fish, being from the sea, do not fall under that same condemnation that afflicted man and the other earthbound creatures in Genesis. Thus, in the Exodus, when God provides the Israelites with quail along with the manna, it was a sign that although this was a generous gift, it was not like the sacramental Eucharist that we receive today. It was still colored by sin, and that would not be taken away until Christ atoned for all the sins of the world on the cross. As Jesus said, the Jews ate the bread and it certainly sustained them in body, but they still eventually died. The manna did not offer everlasting life. By contrast, Jesus says of the Eucharist, whoever eats this bread will live forever. The salvific quality of the Eucharist is founded upon Christ's shedding of his innocent blood because he was unstained by sin. Hence, the use of fish at the multiplication miracle is a clear sign pointing to Christ's precious blood that would become present in the Eucharist even though the fish would be replaced by the wine at the Last Supper. We also see that in the Gospel passage, after the people had eaten the loaves and fish, Jesus says, gather the fragments left over so that nothing will be wasted. And they collected 12 baskets full, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. This is in contrast to the manna from heaven, 
which the Jews could gather to eat as they needed, but they were strictly forbidden to try to keep it overnight. They could only gather as much as they needed for their family for one day. It is noted in Exodus that if the Jews tried to keep the manna overnight in their tents, it would turn wormy and spoil. This again shows that the Eucharist is intended as the bread of everlasting life. Unlike the manna which spoiled, the presence of Christ in the Eucharist is enduring, which is why it can be reserved in our tabernacle. Reservation of the sacrament shows Christ's abiding presence with us. The Eucharist does not keep us merely alive in body as food does or as manna did for the Jews. The Eucharist is instead an infusion of grace that is continually leading us to eternal life. If we fail to understand the symbolism of the multiplication miracle, we will misunderstand the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And if we miss that, we will fail to grasp the essentials of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And if that happens, we will no longer have eternal life within us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.